Please be aware that this episode contains descriptions of injury and mental illness that some listeners may find disturbing. Parental discretion is advised. There was a sudden bang. Then there was a second bang. The third bang was accompanied with a massive orange ball of flame. That's when I knew that we were seriously in trouble. Over a half a million people arrive in the city of London in England by train any given day. Many on their regular commute into work. They travel at the same time, on the same train, with the same familiar faces in their carriage. Some of us like to read or listen to our favorite podcasts as we travel. Others prefer to simply sit and gaze out the windows as the world passes them by. Rarely do we think that we won't make it to our destination. I'm Donnie Dust, United States Marine Corps veteran and world-renowned survival expert. This is Rescue. Today's episode, A Strange Picnic. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It was a cold morning, I remember that. Back in 1999, then 47-year-old Tony Jasper was an IT consultant and a recent divorcee specializing in high-risk computing. On the bright and frosty morning of October 5th that year, Tony is commuting into London from a house he recently bought in Oxfordshire. There was a lot of time waiting between contracts and then suddenly you are very, very busy indeed. At that time, we were in one of those lulls. The only reason I was commuting into London on that day was that my boss had said to me, I've got to come in, so must you. Tony drives to his local train station with the intention of catching the 0710 direct to London's Paddington station. The 0710 was running late and the railway platform started to fill up with a lot more people who were arriving for the 0720 train. Seeing the crowd on the platform, I decided to let my train go in the belief the second train would have fewer people on. Tony's very methodical and a logical thinker, always conscious of the risks involved in any given situation. The chances of a train crashing are pretty close to nil, but nevertheless, I thought it'd be safer to be three carriages back from the front, just in case it ran into the back of something in the station or, or something of that nature. I sat in carriage E, thinking that uh, 
Nothing's ever going to happen, but you never know. A short time later, 48-year-old divorcee Jan Vaughn is heading towards her local station in the town of Thatcham, located about 40 miles west of London. When I went down to get in my car to drive to the station, my windscreen was all frosted up. And unfortunately, that made me late and I missed my normal train. Tony and Jan missed their usual trains by a matter of minutes. Little do they know, this singular moment will change the course of their lives forever. Elsewhere, at Paddington Station, the morning rush hour is in full swing. At peak times, as many as 50 trains are active in the station every hour, carrying thousands of passengers between them. That morning is no different. On platform nine, recently qualified train driver, Michael Hodder, settles into the driver's compartment of the Thames Turbo train bound for the town of Bedouin. It's standing room only for its 140 odd passengers. With the driver's checks complete, at precisely six minutes past eight, the 31-year-old Hodder starts up the engine and eases the turbo out of the station. Fast approaching at 80 miles per hour from the other direction is the first Great Western. On board, Tony and Jan, along with 420 others, ready themselves for their arrival into Paddington. I'm certainly not a person that gets and stands up in the doorway. I would just wait until the train has come to a stop and, you know, putting my book away just before it stops and then getting off and making a dash for the underground. In the Paddington Station control room, signal operators keep a watchful eye on the Thames Turbo as it exits the station. To get to the track for Bedouin, it first has to cross over two others. It's a tricky procedure that relies on a series of carefully orchestrated lights that inform the drivers when to stop and when to proceed. At just after eight minutes past eight, the turbo, now traveling at 40 miles per hour, is fast approaching a signal light that has just turned red. But instead of stopping, the train accelerates up to 50 miles per hour. The signal operators can only watch in horror when it veers out to cross another track and seconds later, plowing headlong into Tony and Jan's oncoming train. There was a sudden bang. Then there was a second bang. The third bang was accompanied with a massive orange ball of flame. That's when I knew that we were seriously in trouble. The fireball rolled past my window and then came the smoke. My thoughts at that time were, I'm going to get crushed, I'm going to get burnt, or I'm going to choke to death. It was probably about the fifth bang where the carriage was thrown up in the air. There was big jolts, screeching sounds, then I believe I must have lost consciousness. 
when I regained consciousness in the carriage, I wasn't aware of any particular smells or anything. It was just a very strange feeling. The carriage was already mainly empty at that time. I must have hit my head on the side of the window or something like that. It was just this feeling of being disorientated, but still able to function. I could see debris over the top of the carriage that I was in, and you have this sort of sense of whatever's going on here, you know, what's, what's happened. What happened was the two trains collided head-on at a combined speed of 130 miles per hour. For the more lightweight Thames Turbo, the impact is devastating. The first Great Western spears right through the front carriage, completely obliterating it. There are 26 people inside, 19 of whom, including the driver Michael Hoder, are killed instantly with some bodies being flung right out onto the tracks. Three are killed in the second carriage and one in the third, which ends up on its side. When the train finally comes to a stop, the second carriage catches fire. Of the first Great Western, the front five carriages are completely derailed. Driver Brian Cooper is killed instantly, while the carriage behind, carriage H, is thrown into the air and jackknifed 180 degrees, killing a further five people. Carriages G and F behind tip onto their side. Adding further to the chaos is the destruction of the Thames turbo fuel tank, which occurs at the moment of impact. Gallons of diesel fuel spewed into the air, instantly igniting in a huge 70 meter long fireball that roared through the front carriages. When Coach H finally grinds to a halt, it's already on fire. When the train came to a standstill, there was just a silence. I realized that I hadn't been crushed. I hadn't at that time been burnt and the area was smoky, but I could still breathe. And when you're in that set of circumstances, the first thing you've got to do is to get out. Inside, it's a chaotic mess of smashed seats, broken glass, and sharp metal debris. There are 85 passengers and nearly half are badly injured, and the carriage is steadily filling with a thick black smoke. The doors on one side are jammed shut, while on the other side is the intense heat of the two fires now raging in carriage H. Hanging heavy in the air is the pungent smell of wet diesel fuel. There's always a risk whenever you've got flame, whenever you've got smoke, whenever you've got huge amounts of diesel fuel kicking around, that if it's not burning now, it certainly will be if you hang around. And all I wanted to do was to get myself out of that train. While others panic, IT consultant Tony's brain seems to sharpen and focus in the moment. Normal senses are put to one side when you get uh, involved in an environment like this. And what I can assume is that my brain just concentrated on what was important. So I heard nothing. I smelt nothing. Then I was in rescue mode. Tony was not a trained emergency professional, which makes what he did next all the more extraordinary. 
Tony credits the emergency response training he was given by his employer only a few years before with helping him to focus in that moment. One or two people were trying the, the door handle for the passenger door out of the back of the carriage unsuccessfully. There was a window in the door and it was big enough to crawl out from. So I then shouted down the carriage for anybody who's got a hammer or some kind of sharp implement. And what I was presented with just the hammerhead, somebody had hit a window so hard that it had broken the handle off. Many of us have no doubt seen those little red hammers positioned next to the train windows. We know they're for emergency purposes, but do we actually know how to use them? Thanks to his training, Tony is already one step ahead. I knew exactly where to hit tough and glass. The trick is to hit it in the corner, not the middle. So I was able to take out that window with one tap and then just push all the glass out. The next problem is dealing with all the ripped power lines now dangling precariously outside the window. With no idea if they are still alive or not, which, as it turned out, they were, Tony grabs as many coats and bags as he can find and wraps them around the wires to protect anyone from being electrocuted. I then started to climb out the window. When I got out, I couldn't believe it. My overriding passion then was to get as many people out as possible because they did not deserve to be in there. With news of the crash only just filtering through to emergency services, it's clear to Tony that in the meantime, he and the other passengers are on their own. And there is no time to wait. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I then shouted instructions for people to come out. Feet first, tummy down. Then I grabbed their feet as they came out and I was able to guide their feet down to all of the, the various rips and tears in the bodywork of the train so that they could get down and I would then lift them the last three feet of the journey. That was when I got most of the cuts on my hands from glass which was in people's clothing and in their footwear. When one person was out they, they couldn't believe it either and they shot off. And then the next person came out, and the people just kept coming. I stayed there, and I guided every one of them down and lifted them the rest of the way. I didn't have any broken limbs or anything like that, so I was able to walk. When I did 
eventually join the back of the queue to get out. We were being helped down because it was quite a long drop to get down onto ground level. And I just remember it looked like a, a horror movie. There were bodies, there were people just sitting on the trackside, completely dazed, a lot of people badly burned. And just this sort of silence, just this sort of disbelief, you know, whatever's happened here. Tony describes it as being like a strange picnic. There were bright colors everywhere. There's people's clothing. There were backpacks, there were briefcases, all spread about in a random fashion. So it's a very unnatural to look around and find all these oddments lying around on the track. As well as people, of course, people who couldn't walk, people who had such bad lung damage that they couldn't move. There was burnt people. There were severely injured people with hemorrhaging, traumatic injuries. All about dazed people sit on the track in their office clothes, covered in soot and ripped from the impact. One man walking about with a vacant look on his face was described by one survivor in a 2019 Guardian newspaper article as having skin hanging off his hands like a spider's web. Some passengers are on fire. People cry and try to comfort each other as they wait for rescue services. And then the phones begin to ring. Countless ringtones blur out from the wreckage. Calls that will never be answered. When I had got the last person out of my carriage, and I think there were 40 people, I believe I counted 40 people, I had a look around, and that's when I saw the full horror. There was carnage everywhere. By this point, Carriage H is now entirely consumed by flames. The fire that broke out around the second Thames turbo carriage is also getting worse. Tony is himself covered in diesel and liable to catch fire at any moment. I didn't spend any time on those carriages because it would have been quite honestly pointless. You have to be brutal when you are confronting a situation like that and try to help those people who can be helped and who need help. And that was my motivation. And it's at that point that I looked further down the train. I saw on an upturned carriage waving through a window, a man's hand. It's coming out of the rear carriage of the Thames Turbo. The fire from the carriage in front is now spreading rapidly. Thinking quickly, Tony instructs two teams of four men to help. First, to boost him up onto the top of the carriage so he could pull out anyone trapped inside, and then to catch them as he helps maneuver them to the ground. Now, this coach was turned on its side, so the window was now skyward. Everything was slippery and covered in diesel. I looked into the window, and it was the guard's window at the back of the train, and I got hold of this man's hand and pulled him out. We didn't say anything, and he and I sat there 
on the side of the train, pulling out people. I don't know what was being said. I don't know what noises or smells were going on. I had no consciousness of that because I was fully focused on getting people out of that carriage in case it burst into flames. Meanwhile, Jan and the other survivors have begun to move away from the crash site. There were metal stairs that went up the side of the track because it was down in a hollow and it went up to a big Sainsbury's car park at Ladbroke Grove. Sainsbury's is a large UK-based supermarket chain. The one at this site quickly turns into a makeshift triage center for crash survivors and first responders. There was a lady, I don't know what train she was on. She was limping and quite disorientated, so I helped her up the steps and she stayed with her until we were eventually triaged. Just taking them out one by one and lowering them to where the teams below could catch them. Everybody was was different, really. Some were compliant, some were actually injured. One lady, in panic, got out, and I couldn't grab her, and she just jumped into space, and uh, she landed on the track somewhere. Another passenger tried to grab me. They weren't happy about sliding down the roof of the train to get out, and they grabbed me. And I realized that I had to take off my tie, and I threw my tie away. A person who was too scared to slide down had to make the decision for them. All I wanted to do was do as much as I could while it was a fairly stable environment. And I say fairly stable because you never know what's going to happen next. I moved around to the back of them when they couldn't grab me and pushed them over the edge of the carriage where waiting hands took them safely down. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It did have a sense of unreality when you've gone through this major crash, which your brain's trying to process, and then you come into a scenario which is a normal scenario where people are shopping, you know, they're coming out with their shopping trolleys and loading stuff into their cars. It was a very unreal situation. Back at the crash site, Having helped around 25 people out of the Thames Turbo carriage, 65 in total, Tony is physically exhausted. And as everybody cleared down, um, I shouted into the carriage, is anybody in there? And there was no response. 
So I can only assume, and I had to assume at the time, that somebody had got everybody out who could get out. When I got down from the track, I was talking to a young man, and he appointed himself in the position of spotter, finding people. And he said, there's somebody underneath that garage and they're still alive. And I had to explain to him that I was just too physically exhausted to do any more. Though it no doubt seems like a long time to those caught up in the crash, the first fire crews arrive on the scene only five minutes after the collision. They quickly begin tackling the various blazes that have broken out. Police arrive a short time later and corral the hundreds of survivors still wandering around the track, finally bringing some order to the chaos. Like Jan, Tony makes his way to the Sainsbury parking lot where the staff from the supermarket have been spurred into action. In an incredible show of spontaneous collective Samaritanism, they pull medical supplies, frozen food, towels, and water from the shelves and raced over to help the survivors. Construction workers nearby provide the first ladders used to rescue the survivors from the upturned carriages and help cut holes and fences so firefighters can access the site. I must say that the staff from the Sainsbury's store there were absolutely terrific. They had lots of first aiders as part of their staffing and they would bring out chairs for us to sit on, they would provide water and did whatever they could until uh, the emergency services got there. Medical staff receiving patients at nearby hospitals described the wounds they saw that day as some of the worst they had ever witnessed. Out of the 570 individuals involved in the crash who aren't killed, just under 400 are treated for injuries, many of them life-changing. One passenger, lucky enough to make it out of carriage H, suffers 70% burns over her body. By the time I got up the railway embankment and into the Sainsbury's car park, it was about 45 minutes after the crash, and of course hundreds of survivors had already made their way up there. So it's a very busy place. I had a cup of tea and talked to a few more people and went to the gentleman's toilet and washed my hands and so on. I'd washed all of the grime and the blood off my hands, so I felt reasonably clean to go. I was still soaked in diesel and I still stank. Afterwards, Tony calls his work to inform them that he won't be making it in that day. Then, after leaving his details with the police officer, he simply heads home. Incredibly, his first thought is to get the train. First of all, headed for the, the, the underground train station, the tube, but the police had closed that, and they closed it to survivors as well. So I met some other people in the street who were similarly confused, not knowing where the hell they should go from here. In the end, Tony shares a taxi home with some other survivors, while Jan is picked up by her parents. By 11.30 a.m., most of the wounded have been rescued, but there are still three people trapped inside the twisted metal of the wreckage. After two more hours of painstaking extraction from firefighters, the last survivors are finally freed. And with that, 
The sense of urgency and hope that galvanized all who had taken part in the rescue dissipates to be replaced by the somber, harrowing job of searching for the dead. Like the rest of the survivors, Tony and Jan spend the next few days trying to wrap their heads around what happened. I don't remember much about those first few days. It was just all a bit of a blur. There was a need to see what had actually happened, the impact of the crash. But when you see aerial footage, it's massively confronting. I had to give up watching the news after a while because it was actually too upsetting. You just didn't want to see it anymore. It was a very restless night's sleep. Really can't remember how much I slept, but I know that the following day I felt really tired and washed out, and that is when I I phoned my office and said, look, I really need to take a couple of days off to get over this. And there was no warm response or or any kind of support whatsoever. And it was a very short conversation. In the weeks and months that follow, it was clear to both Tony and Jan that things are not right. To me, I obviously could not work because I couldn't focus. And I was still in quite a level of shock, which... I called delayed shock, but I had no idea what it was medically. I just knew that I I couldn't work. Now, after a couple of days, I thought I'd better show my face in the office again. But I was not able to get on a train. And I drove into London. I just wanted to give myself the time to, you know, try and emotionally adjust to what had happened. I had made the decision in my time off work that I really could not contemplate going back on a train. I spoke to my employers and explained the situation. They were very understanding and uh, I said, you know, I, I would be leaving. Initially, when I changed roles and got a new job, I believed that I stepped up to the plate really well. I did that for about six months. And then, um, you know, things started going a bit awry. I was in a sales meeting with our small sales team that consisted of me and salesmen and a marketing director. And the salesman said to me in the middle of the meeting, you don't seem to be paying attention, Tony. That was the first time I had this horrible shock that I was in out of my depth. What I didn't know was that I was sliding down the slippery slope of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. I had no knowledge of it. I wasn't expecting it. I hadn't researched it. And the enormities being mentally ill just hadn't dawned on me. After first coming to prominence in the 1970s, The term post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, was frequently used to diagnose U.S. veterans of the American Vietnam War who were suffering from the psychological impact of their traumatic experiences. Today, it's widely understood to relate to the psychological effects of all manner of trauma from sexual assault to Holocaust survival, 
But in 1999, outside of the psychiatric profession, it was still mostly only associated with the experiences of battle-weary soldiers. It came to a head when the salesman for my team uh, made a complaint to my immediate manager about my poor performance, and I was called in. And I said, I really don't know what's going on. I don't understand what's going on, and I think it's time that I saw a doctor. I didn't know what was going on myself, but it's only subsequently that, you know, I realized that I was going through PTSD. And again, I think unless anybody's been through that, it's really difficult to try and describe how it affects you. About four or five months, maybe six months after the crash, I went to see a GP and the first thing the GP said was, I'm signing you off for three weeks and I'm treating you for depression. I was then given antidepressant medication to take and I sat at home for three weeks and I wasn't getting any better, I was getting worse. And my GP said, well, that's okay, we can put you on different antidepressants and I've got a load more besides. And I tried a different set of antidepressants and I was going downhill downhill to the point where I didn't want to go anywhere, didn't want to see anybody, and my GP quite rightly signed me off from work. And I was now being signed off for a a month at a time. And that was at the time when I had heard of the Paddington Survivors Group. The group of survivors had set themselves up to help people who had got through the crash but hadn't got through the aftermath. I don't quite remember how I got on to know about Paddington Survivors Group, but I do remember thinking I could benefit from going to their meeting. Just to be able to talk to these people and realise that suddenly I was not alone was a fantastic feeling. When you've got PTSD coupled with depression, you are really unable to focus on the needs of other people. It's not that you don't want to, it's that you can't. And I couldn't read other people's emotions because I could barely contain my own emotions or control emotions or even understand my own emotions. Because I was ill. My children were of an age where they could understand what I'd gone through, but they were not of that level where they could necessarily understand how I was. You know, I was, I was their dad. I was their dad. I was this strong person who never broke. And they couldn't see that I was not really able to function as a dad. And it isn't only post-traumatic stress that Tony is dealing with. Despite his extraordinary actions on the day of the crash, he's begun to suffer from survivor's guilt. This is a stage that survivors go through where they think, why was it me? Why did I survive? Why was I there at all? Why didn't it happen to somebody else? And I had a lot of time for people who were bereaved, people who I spoke to who had lost their son or their daughter or their husband or wife or whatever, or their mother. And of course, they have a different perspective and their thoughts will be, yeah, why was it my relative? Why was it my loved one? And here's Tony Jasper walking around. 
Tony eventually finds his way to the Paddington Survivors Group, an organization that is set up to provide help and support to the survivors of the crash. And when a public inquiry into the crash is opened, led by Lord William Cullen, Tony is among a small delegation from the group who decides to attend the hearing. Those people who lived west of London, which is most people, as it turned out, who would no longer take train travel, decided to hire a minibus. And most of the people who lived within me uh, went by minibus to the public inquiry, which is held in the Westminster Hall in London under Judge Lord Cullen. Also on the bus that day, sitting only a few rows from Tony, is fellow Paddington Survivors Group member Jan Vaughan. We were all talking on the minibus about what Lord Cullen, you know, what his recommendations might be, and summing up, it was only when we actually got to the Methodist Hall that I think Tony had already been round having a look because it was a magnificent building, and he said to me before we took our seats, you know, did I want to have a look around the hall? And I, yeah, you know, it would uh, be a nice thing to do. And at lunchtime, a group of us, Jan included, went to one of the local city parks in London and had an ice cream by the Thames. That was a nice break away from the heaviness of the summing up of the inquiry. That was a bit of normality, just walking down because it was a lovely sunny day and just sharing that ice cream in the park. My first impressions of Jan was that uh, this was a nice lady who's going through a really hard time. And we just had pleasant conversation. But that was far from the end for Jan and Tony. One of us has got can no sound. Hear? I can hear perfectly. How I about can't you? hear a thing. I'm just going to pull it out. Okay, I'm going to, I can hear with it like that. You're okay with that? Okay. Yeah. Can you hear both of us? You should be getting us in stereo now. When did we first make a date? I can't remember exactly the sequence of events, but there were a couple of things that were happening locally, and I I think the first one was theatre production. It was a date which didn't really transpire as a date because on that day I just started taking a new course of antidepressants and they had quite a bad side effect on me and I was feeling very ill. So about 20 minutes into the performance, I said to Jan, look, this isn't happening for me. I've just got to go. I don't feel well. And that was the end of that evening. I think the next time we had arranged, it was some battle proms at a local venue. I believe that was more successful apart from when they let off the cannons and and that was a bit of a shocking moment. Everything was going swimmingly at this uh, outdoor concert until the 1812 Overture started up and they had real cannons firing and uh, that was it for me. I just collapsed in a heap and that was the end of that date. This was a very slow-burning ember, which (laughs) took a long time to to get going. I don't know when we we first realised there was something there. I think it was sort of quite quite early-ish on. There was one evening I was out and I got a phone call from Jan saying that she really was unhappy and wanted some company. So I said, uh, well, I'll head home and, and come and join me at my home. And I guess that's when the romance really got going because after that, Jan went back to her apartment and got a suitcase and came back to my house. 
He was a very sympathetic ear, and so he was the natural person I thought of to contact at that time. And I'm glad I did. <laughs> Conversation between Jan and me was easy because we understood how each other would be feeling. I would be up and Jan would be down, and then it worked vice versa, and that seemed to work extremely well for us. It wasn't long before the couple decided to take the next logical step. He actually did ask my father for my hand in marriage, which my father was quite shocked about, considering I wasn't, uh, you know, a young person. And uh, I can't remember my father's exact words, but it was something like, why not? Jan and Tony married in 2004 and later moved out to Tasmania, where they live happily today and recently celebrated their 19th wedding anniversary. When Jan and I reached the ages of 70, respectively, we decided to wind down. We don't uh, generally discuss the crash. Obviously, what we're doing today has uh, uh, brought it all back. But ordinarily, no, we don't discuss the crash at all. I like to enjoy the present and look forward to the future. And dwelling on the past is fine if you're trying to learn from something. But otherwise, it's not in my daily thoughts. Sometimes I might go back and think, what did I do there? Did I do the right thing? How could I have done it better? But I don't get the intrusive thoughts that I had when we were suffering from PTSD. Tony and Jan finding each other is in many ways the second rescue story of this episode. Through their love for each other, both have not only overcome their PTSD, but also found a future to look forward to. Shortly after emigrating to Tasmania, Tony recovered enough to join the local volunteer ambulance service, where he continued to help others for over a decade. The official inquiry into the crash was completed in 2000. In conclusion, Lord Cullen found that it was most likely the result of a poorly placed signal light on the run out of Paddington Station. Due to the signal being partially obscured and with bright sunlight on it at a low angle, it is thought that the Thames turbo driver, Michael Hodder, was unable to see that it was red when he drove past it. 570 people in total were involved in what would become known as the Ladbrook Grove or the Paddington Rail Crash. Many suffered significant and life-changing injuries, and 31 people died. Thanks to the actions of Tony and many others that day, that number was significantly lower than it could have been. In February 2001, then Prince of Wales, now King Charles III, presented Tony along with 46 other members of the public and emergency services with a certificate of commendation for the outstanding courage and skill they displayed on the day of the crash. You've been listening to Rescue with Donnie Dust. Rescue is a Sony Music Entertainment production. Thanks to all the contributors for sharing their story with us. Rescue is produced by Richard McLean Smith. The executive producer is Louisa Field. The junior producer is Martha Miller. Scoring and sound design by Gulliver Tickle. Music composed by Eleni Hassabas. The production coordinator is Lily Hambly. The production manager is Kat Moran. 
thanks to Jez Nelson, Chris Skinner, and Julia Stevenson. If you like this podcast, then do check out other Sony podcasts. 